And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, April 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, that new federal regulatory agenda has generated some opposition from business. Plus, HUD's Inspector General takes on two of the worst public housing problems. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, agencies have made some progress, a little bit more than usual, on the biannual high-risk list, just out from the government's main overseer. In it, the Government Accountability Office offers detailed risk reports on dozens of troubled federal programs. Congressional committees see the high-risk list as a sort of checklist for their own work. The 2023 list came out Thursday. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more of what it says. And Drew, three new areas were added this year, and yet GAO said some areas had improved. Let's talk about those first. Of the 37 areas total that are on the high-risk list, 16 areas, GAO said that those improved. This is actually the most number of items on the list that GAO says has improved since it started rating things in this way. so That a couple, goes back to 1990, by the way. It's right? quite a while. <laughs> quite quite a while. while. A couple of examples are VA's health care program as well as postal service. So there are a couple areas where GAO is saying things are getting a little bit better. But on the other hand, of course, there are areas of regression. An example of that is the DOD Business Systems Modernization Program. U.S. Comptroller General Gene Dodaro testified before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. He explained a little bit more. Congress provided stable funding, at least for the next five years, for the surface transportation area. It didn't solve the problem long term, so it's still on the list, but there was good progress. Congress passed Postal Service Reform Act that eliminated some of the financial pressures on the Postal Service, but the Postal Service business model is still not viable in the future. They continue to lose money, and that remains on the list as well. Congress has provided some additional resources to uh, IRS, which uh, deals with our high-risk area of tax administration on that area. Yeah, he tells it straight. And let's talk about what's new to the list, some interesting areas. There are three areas that are new in just the past two years. The newest one, which was just added in 2023, was the federal prison system. This is a lot of ongoing issues with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. They actually came out dead last in the best places to work rankings with a score of 35.5. And some of those low scores might be caused by a lot of staff attrition within that agency their use of overtime actually went up over 100%, which Dodaro said points to that low staffing with the agency. And Charles Johnson, another expert at GAO, explained more. Not only did overtime go up, it's continuing to go up, and there's been continued gaps in their staffing as well. And the numbers are continuing to decline. Uh, they have a 15% gap in their authorized staffing levels. We've looked at their efforts to calculate staff. Uh, and we didn't see a good methodology in place. And that's one of the recommendations we have made. That, And we think the new director, Peters, is committed to, to looking into that issue. We've had several meetings with her, including the Controller General has met with her. Uh, at the time we were meeting with her, she was in the process of doing strategic planning. She also is looking to establish clear goals with respect to their staffing needs as well as other programs that they have as well. And I would put congressional audio quality on the high-risk list too. But, yeah, Bureau of Prisons plus the 
terrible conditions of the employees that are there Correct. that have been documented widely. There's sexual abuse and there's just physical danger from being around the prisoners. Really bad situation. On the good side, though, there have been a couple of things removed from the list this year. One of those was the 2020 decennial census. GAO said that they've made progress in addressing things like data quality, and they've worked on implementing a lot of the recommendations from GAO. Of course, GAO said it will still be monitoring the 2030 census that is coming up in several years from now. Another area that has been removed from the high-risk list was the pension benefit programs. That's just they've said that there's a better financial positioning with that program now. All right. And a lot of the high-risk programs often have certain fundamentals in common, like financial financial management, human capital management, cybersecurity. What did GAO have to say about that one? That is definitely a top concern for GAO. It's something that Dodaro pointed to right away in the hearing. He said that it's a national security issue, but a lot of it, of course, comes back to how the federal workforce is staffing up or addressing issues with cyber workforce staffing. He also said that the White House has a national cyber strategy, which is a good thing, but that there is not yet a way to implement or measure how to really execute that strategy. So there are a lot of problems, and many of them stem from cyber workforce issues. Managing Director of GAO's Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Nick Marino, said more. What we'd be looking for is, one, a pushback to the agencies to continue to identify where they have gaps. Even though we've seen some improvement in this area, there's no comprehensive way for us to know whether each federal agency actually knows what it needs, first of all. The second thing is that each agency then needs to focus on not only recruiting and hiring, but also retaining uh, really, really highly qualified staff. We know there's a shortage not only within the federal government, but across the nation. And so it'll be important for them to leverage not only the tools that they have right now, but recent legislation that's called on creative ways to try to generate ideas for how to keep uh, federal government employees actually staying within the federal government. And another cross-cutting issue is federal human capital management. That's something that has been on the list, Tom, since 2001, so more than 20 years. Human resources is still a government-wide skills gap, and there are even challenges within the Office of Personnel Management itself. Dodaro explained more. A lot of the human resource people were trained over the years, going back to the civil service reform days, to be compliance-oriented, to make sure you don't do anything wrong in, in these areas, as opposed to what can I do to be helpful to help in these uh, difficult areas. So we need to change that mindset, change that approach, and get the right people in there to support them. Then I think things will be a lot easier. And by the way, did Gene Dodaro in testifying do his usual performance of not looking at any notes but having a photographic retention of everything on that high-risk list? He did not have a single paper in front of him, Tom. Yeah, it's amazing. I, it, it just astounds me. Every two years we see this, and the man never looks at the notes because I think he looks, reads his report and memorizes it. He should have been an opera. Also, it came up at the hearing that uh, GAO itself is doing pretty well with its own human capital management and staff management. That's right, Tom. Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters gave a little bit of a shout-out to GAO. And I know last month the Partnership for Public Service named GAO the best place to work in the federal government for mid-sized agencies. Congratulations for that. Great, great honor. And I'll add it was the third year in a row. Now that's worthy of applause. Three years in a row. Three years in a row. (laughs) It didn't sound like cast of thousands was there to clap for that. But yes, that is something. And by the way, GAO is a congressional agency. They don't even have to do the FEVs. 
they do it voluntarily. So kudos there too. Absolutely. Yeah, they've had it for a couple of years, as they said. And, you know, I think they're trying to keep that up for the next couple of years. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in Tuesday when I sit down with Comptroller General Gene Dodaro for his take on the high-risk list. Still to come, HUD's Inspector General takes on two of the worst public housing problems. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Office of Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development is boosting efforts to end sexual abuse and unsanitary conditions in HUD-backed housing. For details, Inspector General Ray Oliver-Davis. Ms. Oliver-Davis, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. And you're doing a couple of things here. Let's start with the sexual abuse There was a horrifying case in public housing that the Justice Department just took care of. Tell us what happened, and is that, in your sense, emblematic of what can happen in public housing? Sure. Thank you for that question. We opened that matter in May of 2018, and it started out with just one agent and one victim. And we zeroed in on a New Jersey landlord. He had been receiving about $1.2 million in Housing Choice Voucher uh, HUD assistance annually. And what we discovered were allegations spanning about 15 years, allegations that included quid pro quos, uh, sexual contact, for rental assistance. You know, if you do this, you can stay here. If you don't do this, you might be evicted, those sorts of things. Pretty horrible conduct. We did work that with the New Jersey U.S. Attorney's Office. You mentioned that, and they charged him in August of 2020. Then in March of 2021, the local New Jersey Union County prosecutors charged him with multiple counts of sexual assault and and criminal sexual conduct. So we had a number of things going on there. This resulted in a settlement, though, in about December of 2021 for $4.5 million. It was the biggest settlement DOJ had had of this kind with this particular kind of conduct. About $4.3 million, Tom, went back to the victims. And the big thing here for my agency is that this individual had to sell all of his properties. He had hundreds of units. He had to vest himself of all of that. And he had to agree not to be a residential property landlord going forward. All right. So that was a particularly egregious case. But do you have the sense that it's not the only one? Absolutely. And unfortunately, we do not believe it's the only one. It's hard to put numbers on these things, I think, precisely because it's difficult for people to come forward. And I think maybe until now, HUD beneficiaries who had suffered at the hands of this kind of misconduct didn't even know that there was any kind of recourse or that it was a crime or a violation of the Fair Housing Act. So that's something we're really trying to do is get awareness out to the public on this. But when we talk to HUD, when we talk to DOJ, when we talk to the locals, we all get a sense that this is unfortunately quite pervasive. You know, I said that that last case started with one victim, but sometimes we get up to 60 victims. So it's out there. It's a thing. So we're really trying to combat this terrible conduct. And what are you doing from the IG standpoint to help combat this? We are partnering with just about everyone. There's something here for all of government. It's kind of a whole of government approach, all hands on deck. For us, working with our DOJ partners, getting bad actors out of the program, that's what we do best. That's what we want to do here. You know, each of these victims could potentially also have a fair housing claim. They have to bring that within a year. So we definitely make sure they're on that path to filing that with the department. That's something HUD can do. We work with the state and locals on these misconduct, criminal sexual conduct cases. And frankly, these start out 
they can almost be a he said, she said sort of thing. But by the time we investigate them and we've got 60 victims, we really boost the state case against these bad actors as well. We also are driving complaints to our hotline. Like I said, right now we fear that we have people that don't even know that this is a crime or something they can do anything about. So we're really trying to get the word out that way. And you have some public service ads running too, right? We do. We have some public service ads running. There's a video of me hopefully educating people about what to look for. You know, if your maintenance worker said this to you, if your landlord did this, just really educating potential victims on the conduct that we're aiming to target. And what about the HUD housing program offices themselves that actually do the payouts, certify the landlords and run these programs? Well, certainly that's a good question. And we're always looking to do oversight there. And this really is something where if we can get a conviction, if we can get a settlement like we had in the New Jersey case, we would then refer them for disbarment. So they wouldn't be able to participate in any HUD or government programs going forward. That's something we would work together with HUD to do. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis. She is Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. And let me ask you about the other matter that you are concentrating on, and that is substandard conditions. I guess there's still lead paint even this many years after no lead paint, you know, in the market and other problems with housing that are physical in nature and make for unsanitary, unhealthy conditions. What's the extent of that and what are you doing about it? Well, Tom, you hit the nail on the head and you listen to the news like I do. We hear every day about landlords who don't hold up their end of the bargain. They get the housing assistance payments, but they're not providing safe, sanitary housing. It's a big problem. Housing stock is old. There's a capital needs backlog. I think you and I have talked about this before. That contributes to the problem. The age of the housing stock contributes to the fact that there still could be lead in the property. So there's a lot to do here. We are using our entire toolkit to really look at unit conditions on every level. You know, we're certainly looking at HUD oversight of the department itself. We're looking at the inspection process. You know, you and I, I think, have talked about the REAC inspection process before. That's the main tool for looking at unit conditions. It's been flawed for a while. It's pretty complex. You know, HUD has been looking to revamp it with new standards. There was a bit of a backlog during the pandemic, so we're doing oversight there. We're seeing how that implementation of the new standards are going and have they really been able to attack the backlog and look at unit conditions in a timely manner. We're looking at RAD conversions. You know, that's been the department's answer to to aging public housing stock, you know, give them access to equity and perhaps the conditions will improve. We're going to look at are the conditions actually improving in certain rental assistance demonstration properties. We're also looking at emergency health and safety issues. You know, the timeline there is usually 24 hours to address those. We're looking to see if HUD's doing proper oversight of that. And then we're doing targeted reviews beyond the HUD and program level, and we're looking at entities. You know, we see all the time HUD will finally abate a contract and basically have a landlord exit the program, and they have to relocate tenants. So we're doing some target reviews there as well. And you mentioned lead. Absolutely. We're looking at lead from the HUD perspective. Does HUD have a plan for holding PHAs accountable? Are they making sure the lead safe housing rule is being enforced? And then we're looking at high-risk properties. You know, we were looking at the Philadelphia Public Housing Authority. We just did an audit there where we found they didn't have any documentation whatsoever pre-2019 on lead disclosures. So we couldn't say for sure whether tenants were even being notified there were lead in the property. So for us, the big takeaway here is if you don't have the right controls at the program level, 
at the partnership level, so the participant level, then that leaves you vulnerable to bad actors. So that's where we come in too. That's another part of our toolkit. You know, we just had a case in Indiana where a contractor took uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for doing repairs and renovations, didn't ensure that any of that was done with lead safe practices in mind. And we already had a child in that unit with lead blood poisoning. So we're doing things like that as well. Do you also look into the finances of operators of this housing to understand, you know, is what they're getting sufficient? Is there money left over? Do they put away capital expenditures such that they can maintain the properties? Because often rent-controlled types of properties tend to be often the least cared for. That is something we're discussing every day, Tom, and it's a really good question. For instance, like I mentioned a property in Pepper Tree right now where we're doing some research, so we haven't actually opened anything there, but we're looking at what happened there. You know, we have properties that just aren't being maintained, so what's happening to the funding around that? And we're looking at how is HUD overseeing that as well? Are they looking at the financials? You know, so often with these RAD conversions, they have to put forward a financial plan. So what happens there? How is that successful? How is it not? A RAD conversion means what? Rental assistance demonstration. Demonstration. Well, it's really complex. Uh, There are many different avenues for RAD, but essentially it's the answer to this capital needs backlog in public housing. So it can be a public housing authority that wants to convert to RAD. There are other properties that convert to RAD too, but essentially it's the answer to getting the properties back in better shape and better condition. It doesn't turn them into condos or anything like that. I am not aware of it turning them into condos, right. but we, like I said, it's really complex and there are many different avenues. All right. And while the IG is doing all of this investigative work, again, I have to ask, where are the housing program people sure. in Maine sure. HUD, you know, outside of the IG's office, but in, in the HUD program offices? No, these are good questions. And, you know, and I've cited several examples of our oversight of HUD in these areas. And, you know, a couple things. First of all, like we just partnered with HUD. We did a civil remedy against a landlord for $1.2 million. That's a good partnership for us to do with HUD. I want to see more of that. I want to push for more of that. We're going to commit those resources. I have to say there are areas where HUD's tool could improve lead compliance. You know, I cited several examples there. We really want them to be able to track lead in the housing authorities. But to be fair, Tom, there's 3,300 housing authorities. So we have to talk about the capacity of HUD. In order to carry out their mission, they have to deal with tens of thousands of partnerships. And they have to do oversight of those partnerships. So we have to acknowledge there's a capacity issue there as well. There's some areas where I should point out HUD's made progress. You know, when when we talk about lead and hazards, that's not the only hazard. We have contaminated sites. We've done work around that before. They have a plan in place now to assess properties who are close to contaminated sites and do environmental reviews. That's because of our recommendations and our work. They're very close to a departmental-wide policy on radon, something that would address testing and mitigation where they find radon. That's also part of one of our evaluations. So there's some areas where they've made strides, certainly. And I guess just getting back to the lead paint, because it's emblematic of this, the fact that you know, lead paint was banned, I think, more than 40 years ago. That's testimony to the age of a lot of the public housing. And if there is still lead paint there, that attests to the lack of capital investment in it if you still have window panes and window sills that have lead paint on them. That's right. That's absolutely right. We find that lead dust, lead paint chips, is definitely one of the vulnerabilities when it comes to having children in public housing, yes, and the old stock, certainly. And then you're also getting some wind in the sails from Congress, it looks like, for these efforts. There was a hearing not long ago. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they did a hearing. And we get questions from our congressional stakeholders all the time about this. I just had a hearing on the Hill in advance of the Secretary's budget hearing, and I got questions about these issues. Yes, all these initiatives. 
So it's ongoing, no end really in sight. You know, we're going to keep putting resources to it. You know, one of the things we hope to see, especially in the sexual misconduct area, is deterrence. You know, that's a win for us, too. You know, I think initially with these PSAs and this focus, we hope to see more complaints, uh, more people coming forward because we want to raise awareness where maybe there hasn't been. But in the long run, we'll be doing data analytics. We'll be seeing where to commit our resources. But deterrence is also a win for us, definitely, especially in the sexual harassment arena. And by the way, do you ever do site visits? We do. That's an important part of the process. A few years ago, we did kind of a systematic review in certain cities of housing conditions. I mentioned a few audits that were in the process of launching. Those will be boots on the ground. When I say we're going to look at the unit conditions, we're going to go out and look at the unit conditions. That's definitely what we're going to do. Now, we don't do the inspections. You know, that is a HUD, REAC, Inspire inspection process. That's not us, but certainly in conjunction with our oversight work, being on site, seeing what there is to see, talking to people is certainly very important important. Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate you uh, spotlighting this issue. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about her efforts at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, people, process, and innovation drive Homeland Security procurement in 2023. But first, that new federal regulatory agenda has generated some opposition from business. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration recently declared a new approach to federal regulation it said would modernize and streamline it. The new framework has drawn opposition from business. For one point of view, we turn to the vice president of environment and regulatory affairs at the Chamber of Commerce, Chad Whiteman. Mr. Whiteman, good to have you on. Great. Thanks to be here. Now, this does a lot of things, including, you know, electronic handling of bots and this kind of thing, which probably are useful updates. But I'm guessing the big change that has industry worried is the raising of the threshold of the size of regulational cost that sparks the cost-benefit analysis. That's a big part of it and a, a good point to raise. Certainly, when regulations are scrutinized, by agencies looking closely at costs and benefits, it helps with better decision-making. It helps with better regulatory durability. And we're afraid that this moves in the other direction. Tell me more what the mechanism is by which that would happen. Well, there is a new executive order that would apply to statutory agencies, the big agencies. Many of them issue a lot of regulations each year. And when they decide what type of analysis and resources to put into the regulatory development process, they'll be looking at the costs. And if the costs now are the low end of the, uh, the requirement to do this analysis is being taken away. So uh, not even the low end, but costs between 100 million and 200 million per year is this new category that doesn't require this extra scrutiny from agencies through cost benefit analysis. Right. And a lot of rules fall into that category. That's right. And not just a lot of rules, but once you start getting up around $100 million per year in costs or even benefits, those rulemakings are not just regional or local, have local impacts, but they can have impacts across the economy. 
Sure. And one of the justifications was to streamline this whole thing for federal agencies. But would you say that the streamlining for the agencies comes at the expense of the regulated entities? Well, that's a really good point. And one of our other concerns is the centralized regulatory review process provides the ability for an administration to moderate the regulatory agenda. And we think that this really puts the gas pedal on regulatory proposals without looking cumulatively across the government at what an accelerated aggressive regulatory agenda could have impacts on the economy and businesses. Which agencies do you expect would be the most active under this new regime if it comes to be? I'm thinking probably EPA would be one, maybe transportation? Certainly EPA is one of the top regulatory agencies with looking at climate change as being one of the administration's top priorities. They have a whole suite of regulatory proposals there. Other agencies, uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, DOT, of course, with all of the funding going out through IAJA and others, if there are uh, regulations associated with that, there will be a whole breadth of different regulations all across the economy that fall under this new executive order. We're speaking with Chad Whiteman. He's vice president of environment and regulatory affairs at the Chamber of Commerce. Industry commenting, you know, has been part of the rulemaking process. And one of the things they're trying to eliminate is just this endless, you know, repetitive bot generated commenting, or sometimes they get millions of comments that are identical. And they want to try to figure out a way to stabilize that or neutralize that. Will that have any effect, do you think, also on this? It might. Uh, Certainly, there are advocacy campaigns on significant regulatory policy, and regulation shouldn't really be a popularity contest. They should be based on sound analysis and policy judgments. And certainly, we think that costs and benefits are a very helpful tool in informing regulatory policy. So we hope that stakeholders who are impacted will continue to have the ability to engage agencies as they develop their regulations. Because industry in the last few years has been pretty contrite when it comes to whatever the latest agenda item is coming out of administrations. Many years ago, I remember industry would stand up on its hind legs if they didn't like something coming, say the car industry or the appliance industry. But now you don't hear much. I mean, you don't hear Whirlpool or, you know, Tapan saying, what do you mean by trying to get rid of gas stoves or the car industry? All the executives there never believed much in electrification. Now, not one of them talks about anything but electrification. Certainly, there's some challenges here for companies. I think looking at the changes in these regulations, if it's going to accelerate the regulatory agenda of the administration, if it's going to put its thumb on the scale of benefits and minimizing the consideration of direct costs to industry, I think the response that folks will be giving will probably be a stronger response going forward because it's shifting the balance and moving in a direction that could make these regulations much more stringent and much more difficult for compliance. Yeah, the emphasis on benefits, you do hear this more and more nowadays, the kind of expression, well, even if it only saves one life, it's worth it. But if it costs a billion dollars and 100 million people will be affected and only one will die, I mean, under classic cost-benefit analysis, it may sound hard-hearted, but that is something that you go for the cost side and not the benefit side. Certainly, regulatory cost-benefit analysis calls for weighing costs against benefits. 
and even the long-standing executive orders that have been in place for some time, direct agencies to consider that in the decision-making. One of the concerns we have with the policy is it, it seems to be pushing that analytic approach aside and favoring more subjective judgments, which can lead to decisions that may not be durable, may not be even feasible to implement. And are you concerned about what type of financial and investment and disclosure regulations could come from, say, the SEC, which might favor the corporate finance emphasis on things other than the most profit, the most return to stockholders? Yeah, the chamber has you know a breadth of members who increasingly are taking action on climate change, disclosing their emissions, setting targets out into the future. But one of the challenges is when agencies uh, jump into a space where either they haven't before or there are questions about the statutory authority for them to do it, it, it certainly raises questions and gets to cost-benefit analysis is certainly one tool, again, uh, that agencies can use to provide feedback on the impacts of their policies. So what will the chamber, what will industry do to, if you oppose this, to try to mitigate it or stop it, if anything? Well, that's certainly a good question. We hope to engage the administration. We'll certainly be submitting comments and trying to get in to talk to the White House Office of Management and Budget and any other parts of the government, in particular as it is implemented through various regulatory policies. Our request is they immediately withdraw the executive order and the guidance and stick with what has been in place for the last 40 years. And would you ask, say, Congress to intervene? I mean, they're kind of write the laws that give way to regulation because that's the way the system basically works. But there has been occasional congressional intervention in rulemaking. Yeah, we have certainly supported bills on the Hill that would push for more cost-benefit analysis and regulations and the requirement that they are considered. So we'll certainly be working with Hill folks on, uh, you know, anyone that wants to work with us on any side to hear out stakeholder community issues on something this big. Chad Whiteman is Vice President of Environment and Regulatory Affairs at the Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice to be here highlighting this important issue that could have broad impacts on the business community, the public, and a regulatory policy going down the road. We'll post this interview plus a link to the Chamber's point of view at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, people, process, and innovation drive Homeland Security procurement in 2023. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Homeland Security Department's procurement shop was busier than ever last year, spending nearly $24 billion on about 60,000 transactions. Officials expect an even busier fiscal 2023. Federal News Network's Jason Miller discussed the priorities of innovation, workforce, and process improvement with the DHS Chief Procurement Officer, Paul Courtney. We developed an electronic contract filing system before the pandemic, and we quickly realized how critical it is for the continuity of our, our operations. Again, we're, we're, we're honing it, making it better, but we had that in place before the pandemic. So we were already there in a lot of areas, but the pandemic made us realize, you know, continue to do those great things, but also focus on things to make, make life better. 
So we'll, we'll continue to remain flexible as well. Workforce continue to support the critical mission of DHS. And matter of fact, this flexibility is helping us recruit and retain staff as well and not, not lose them to other agencies. So we need, to, we need to keep ahead of the curve. Just on the process improvements, you know, over the last year or so, we've looked internally about, do we have unnecessary steps in our policy process that we can eliminate? We looked at if it takes 12 stops for a document to get approved, probably halfway along that way, Jason, it's lost any sort of people are probably just checking that box. So we're looking for those areas where, where are we adding value and where are we just providing unnecessary steps and just continuing to streamline that to get our staff to really focus on the on the important the important job of procurement within the department. All right, Paul, there's a ton to jump in there, and, and I definitely want to get into the robotics process automation and, and AI and stuff like that. But I want to go back to the thing you just said, which is this idea of streamlining the process itself. If we have 12 stops per document, how do we get down to six? How do we get down to four? Maybe through technology, we can get down to two, right? Your desk and the, the contract officer's desk or something. What have you found as you've done this research? How are you going about reducing, streamlining, improving? I'll talk about one of the processes, and that is the the, the access to strategy acquisition plan. So what we've, several years ago, the former chief procurement officer of DHS, Soraya Correa, put together a procurement strategy roadmap in place. The idea behind that, that PSR, as we call it, is, hey, before a formal acquisition plan goes through all these stops and makes it to, makes it to the chief procurement officer or senior procurement executive, let's have a conversation. Because I hate to wait a few months to get to that end, all, get all the approval steps, and not have that discussion on the strategy if we disagree with the way it's going or we want to have that conversation. Initially, it was a very informal process, but over time, we've realized that the components, because again, you're talking to headquarters, let's make sure we put some steps in place. So the informal procurement strategy roadmap became a very formal procurement strategy roadmap, almost as detailed as the acquisition plan. So in in conversations with the heads of contracting, the 10 HCAs throughout the department, we took a step back and said, is there a better way to do this? So we've now made the procurement strategy roadmap a voluntary conversation. If you want to have that conversation before the AP gets to us, let's have it. We're not going to force it on you, but we'll have that conversation. And on top of that, with the acquisition plan itself is, so we have stops by policy has to go to where components have created their own stops internally. So all those things mixed together, it, it took months to get an acquisition plan approved. And definitely, you know, definitely was taking too long. So not only did we look at some of those steps, again, making the procurement strategy roadmap a um, a volunteer thing, not a forced thing. On top of that, components have taken it upon themselves to look at their own processes for acquisition plans and, and have taken out their own steps. Again, if it's, I just do about 12, but if it takes that long to get through somebody, I can tell you when I re- was reviewing acquisition plans, being like the, you know, a few months into the process, it was, I was hard-pressed, and I continue to be hard-pressed to say, okay, now I'm going to go back to make them redo their strategy. So, again, we, we're looking to empower our workforce and just to make sure that it doesn't take that long to, to reach the, the signatory folks on, say, an acquisition plan. Interesting that you decided to almost become less prescriptive. Maybe that's not the perfect word, but to say we think these roadmap, these plans are really important, but we realize they also can extend the life. So if you feel good about where you're going, if you feel like, hey, we're, we bought pencils 100 times, we don't need an acquisition roadmap to buy pencils again, that's one thing. If you're buying technology to, to you know, next generation technology to secure the border, hey, maybe that needs a roadmap. I mean, that, is that really what you're saying when you're trying to empower the workforce to really make those decisions of when you need that maybe extra help and maybe when you don't? That's exactly it, Jason. We, again, one of our tenants is, you know, empower and, and and have a workforce be be ready to to lead as they've always done and to give them the ability to do so. There there are complicated things, procurements that the department does. 
we meet with our heads of contracting monthly. So we'll have the, we'll take that time to have those conversations and, and just help, help that, our collective wisdom of all, all of the procurement expertise in the department. We, we want to make sure we continue to empower the workforce to make those decisions. And we're here that we're here to help them. When you talk about empowering the workforce, I got to jump into this idea. You mentioned uh, robotics process automation. Uh, I'll throw in there artificial intelligence or, or at least predictive intelligence. Let's talk a little bit about how you're starting to apply some of those technologies to improve those processes to empower the workforce. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll, go, I'll give a couple of great examples that we've over the last year or so we've incorporated. For years, we've all heard about how RPA, AI is going to change the way not just you know, the public sector, private sector, the way folks do business. So we've taken that to heart and really looked at, you know, how can we empower a workforce, take out some of those mundane tasks that they do that really just, it takes a lot of time, but not a lot of brain power to get done. So how can we incorporate, whether it's RPA or AI to help our staff there? So I'll give a couple of examples where we've we've actually have done that in the department. Um, we had a team at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, been very successful implementing and use of an RPA to create, it's called D the bot. You know, it saved millions of dollars in the last couple of fiscal years. Um, I love these cute names Jason come up with. This is D the bot. So, you know, as you know, RPA uses computer programs called bots to automate rules-based tasks and activities less than administrative burden on employees. CBP first incorporated this, this RPA into its D obligation process in FY21. However, at FY22, D was made available to all the CBP procurement and has performed over 200 plus actions and deobligated over $30 million and really reduced the time manually spent working this process by, by almost 70%. So it used to take you know an hour for a staff member to do a deobligation on average. Now it's just minutes to have that done. And in the significant savings has earned this team several awards, including the 2022 American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council, Act IAC award. So really, really successful. We're going to roll that out across the department. Again, it's just a way to take some of those tasks that again doesn't take a lot of a lot of brain power, but it takes a lot of time. And we know this team won't stop there. They're already looking to expand RPA to additional processes, such as in the uploading of files into our electro, electronic contract filing system, among other areas. There's another pilot taking place right now. This one's not a, a new new uh, RPA. It's called Dora. And Jason mentioned the cute names. Um, this is the Department of Army's contract responsibility determination bot. So in this case, requesters send an email to door with one or more vendor unique entity identifiers, basically the, the old DUNS number, to find any company to do business in a particular area. Door then uses this UEI to pull necessary information from sources such as SAM.gov, other public open source databases. Then door emails information back to the requester. So DHS, we partner with, with the Army to conduct an initial six-month pilot of DORA with their Immigration and Custom Enforcement Office. And again, it's been, it's been phenomenal so far. They've done just tremendous work with it. The feedback received so far has been highly favorable. So again, DORA is easy to use and saving a significant time for a workforce. We're evaluating how we can expand the use of DORA department-wide. And this is the case where it's, it's not making any determinations for us. It's just providing the data quickly back to our, our workforce. Paul Courtney, Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find this and other episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel says he's working on a more complete plan for the agency's hiring over the next decade. 
The IRS in the short term plans to make tens of thousands of new hires by the end of fiscal 2024. The IRS is doing this hiring using initial dollars from that $80 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. Werfel says those funds dramatically improved taxpayer services this filing season. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has been following all of this. He joins us with the latest. And so what is the update to that hiring plan, Jory? Well, what we already know at this point is that the IRS plans to hire 10,000 new employees by the end of this fiscal year and then do that again by the end of fiscal 2024. But what Commissioner Werfel told the Senate Finance Committee is that he's going to have a more complete picture through the 10-year timeline of this Inflation Reduction Act spending, and that's going to be coming in the coming weeks here. And this, we should note, a lot of this hiring is meant to replace people currently at the IRS that are near or past retirement age, the IRS expects that in the coming six years, two-thirds of its current workforce is going to be retirement eligible and that the attrition rate is ticking up. Right. There's that constant notion, I guess, maybe by people that oppose this plan that they're going to hire some 80,000 or 60,000 new gun-toting agents, and that's not really the plan at all. No, no. You know, it's it's certainly some enforcement, but you know, a big focus of what we're talking about here is also taxpayer services. And that's one big message that Werfel tried to convey during this committee hearing. This year, we proved that dramatic improvement is possible. The question is whether we can continue to improve. And that's IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel speaking to the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week. And paying for all this hiring is strictly the, the inflation reduction money. Or they do have a base budget to begin with. Yeah, so the way that Werfel described it, the annual appropriations is meant to cover the day-to-day expenses, and the $80 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act is meant to cover the long-term investments. And hiring is one of those investments, and also investing in the taxpayer services, and using about 1% of that $80 billion, the IRS was able to dramatically overhaul its level of phone service this filing season that just wrapped. It was able to answer about 87% of calls, and that's compared to 2022 when they could answer maybe 15% of calls. Wow. All right. That is, like you said, dramatic improvement over the period of a year. And what about the 2024 budget request? Yeah, well, the IRS is going back hat in hand here, asking Congress for a higher budget than it currently has. They're asking for a $14.1 billion budget for FY 2024. Their current budget is $12.3 billion. So Werfel is saying... What we've seen so far is that the IRS, in terms of service, you get what you pay for. If we're funded at a steady level or cut, then all we can do is maintain our current operation. We have to make investments to deal with this complexity of what we see today. And, Jory, getting back to the call volume, call answering issue, this seems to be really important in the hearing. The senators were concerned about that as kind of emblematic of all of the IRS's service problems? Yeah, no one disputes that the percentage of calls answered was better, but there was some going back and forth between Werfel and some members of the Senate committee in terms of how many calls the IRS got this filing season versus other filing seasons. Some senators thought maybe taxpayers were fed up with prior performance and they didn't bother to call the IRS this season. Werfel said that the, a lower call volume might actually be indication that's a sign of things working and improving. If you say that the call volume went down, that's actually a good thing. That means that our website is working effectively. That means that our apps are working on our smartphones more effectively. If we can build that infrastructure and modernize It's an example. If we just operate at the same budget or less, then maybe we can answer the calls. If we have investments, then maybe we can build and build the callback option. 
Yeah, sounds like omni-channel Danny. And to Werfel's point there, the callback option, by this summer, the IRS expects to roll that out to about 95 percent of taxpayers. So the filing season did end earlier this week, the day after Patriots Day in Massachusetts, as is traditional. What happens now? They've got to get down to brass tacks for everything else they've got going. Right. Well, the soonest the IRS starts working on next year's filing season is the day after the current filing season ends. And so that is going to be a major concern. Werfel said that the people manning the phone lines, that they will be able to be moved to dealing with the IRS's still ongoing paper backlog. So that's just a taste of what the IRS expects to do. You know, that short term addressing of the backlog and that longer term overhauling of the workforce, overhauling of the IT. Seems like they have a big training need here as they hire these new people, whether they're replacements or additional employees over their baseline. People have to know what they're doing. I mean, if you answer the phone, it's one thing to have capacity to answer the phone. It's another thing to give the right answer to the question on the phone. And not just the right answer, but that if they have to call back again, they're going to get the same right answer from a different person. So that's something that the IRS has thought about. They really do need to invest in that. They've said time and again, training is usually the first thing to go in terms of cuts when they've had to go through belt tightening. And so that's something that they are now looking to ramp back up. All right. And enforcement, that has been a big question because billionaires, millionaires, and so forth, and who gets audited in enforcement. How did that come out of the hearing? Well, in terms of where the IRS is currently with its enforcement, uh, it is in a tough situation. Um, the IRS overall has a staffing level that's comparable to the 1970s, and the tax code has gotten far more complex over the decades. And what the Treasury Department estimates here is that the top 1% of U.S. earners account for about $160 billion of the current tax gap. So that's something they're going to have to look at. Werfel did say that currently, in terms of the enforcement side of things, the IRS has about 2,600 people who are tasked only on dealing with high-income earners and companies. And their universe of people they look at, it's 390,000 high-income individuals and companies. Must be mostly companies, because didn't President Biden the other day say there's a thousand billionaires in the country, so let's go after them. And you can't have an IRS hearing and modernization hearing and future hearing without talking about their information technology. Right, right. That's certainly a huge part of the investment here, too. They are looking down the line to invest more in scanning capabilities to really, again, address that paper backlog of what they're dealing with. They still get millions of paper-based tax returns every year. And it's a small percentage of what they get overall, but it still just is a huge time sink for them. Another big part of what they're working on is a long-deferred upgrade of the individual master file. This is the, the mother brain of the IRS in terms of uh, their, their database of what individual taxpayers' history has been with the agency. They are now looking at 2028 to finally have that modernized. Warfel admits that this is something that is now years overdue. But once they finally get to do that, they can really automate some more processes and just generally have a 360-degree view of taxpayers' dealings with the agency every year and, and just going back a considerable amount of time. Well, when they first started that IMF modernization of the idea of it, I think Danny Werfel was probably in high school or college. So maybe by 28, they'll get it done. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 
I'm Tom Temin. 